Morning, welcome again. My name's Tim Fox, I'm the pastor here. Uh, thank you to those of you who came to my mother's funeral yesterday. Uh, if you don't know, my mom was a, a member here. She'd been unhealthy for a very long time, and she went to be with the Lord uh, in the middle of this week, and we're grateful for that after her many years of struggling with a body and a mind uh, touched by the curse, as are all of ours. Uh, our passage this morning is Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 14. This is towards the very end of the Bible. Uh, it's the last book of the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, the big numbers on the page there or on your screen are called chapters. The little numbers are called verses. I'm going to be reading from chapter 3, verse 14, down to the end of the chapter. This is the last of Jesus' seven messages that set up this entire strange book with all of its visions about the end of the world. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. This is Jesus speaking. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, bless now this reading of your word and my preaching of it so that these words might burrow deep into the soil of our hearts and bear the good fruit of peace and love driven by earnest repentance. Help us, Lord, to hear these hard words and in them see and know the true love of Jesus. For we ask in his good name. Amen. Well, as you heard, the message of this last of these seven letters from Jesus to his church is a bittersweet message. It's hard to think of a Bible passage that is simultaneously so piercing and convicting and yet also so uplifting and inviting by the end. I don't know about you, but uh, I can think of a time 
uh, earlier on in my Christian life when this letter to this first century church was exactly what I needed to hear from Jesus. As hard as it is, and I suspect that for some of us here today, we too need to hear what he has to say. I wonder, have you ever asked yourself or wondered what Jesus would say to you? Or how he would counsel you if you could sit down with him for five minutes? If any of us are in danger of going on spiritual cruise control today, then this bitter, sweet letter is the answer. This is a, a letter that Jesus sent to this lukewarm church in the first century, but it's also his message to any lukewarm church or any lukewarm Christian since then. And so if, as Jesus says, we have ears to hear, let's hear his voice as he starts with a terrifying threat of impending judgment. That's the first point this morning. Jesus' terrifying threat of impending judgment. Now, once again, as we've seen in these messages that he's sending to these churches around the western side of modern-day Turkey, uh, the description that starts uh, the letter here in verse 14 is relevant to the specific situation of the church whom he's addressing. Back in Isaiah chapter 65 in the Old Testament, God describes himself as the God of the Amen, uh, or usually we translate it as the God of truth. And here, Jesus takes that divine title from Isaiah 65, and he uses it to describe himself as the faithful and true witness. You see, he's reminding this church that he's the only one who can shoot them straight. Now you know that every church has some kind of reputation. Now people say, oh, CTK, Christ the King, or oh, the PCA, they're this kind of church, this is what they're really into, for good or for bad. And you also know that every church has its own internal sense of what it's like. The church can say, well, you know, we're really struggling right now. Or, wow, we're doing really great. God's really blessing us right now. But neither the external reputation nor the internal perspective is ever going to tell you the full story of what's going on. Now, what if you could hear... The honest truth of what God really thinks about you or about our church. No exaggeration, uh, no tiptoeing, no beating around the bush, just faithful and true testimony of the God who knows everything, the God who sees everything. That's what the Laodiceans are about to get. We also hear here in the beginning that Jesus is the beginning, or a better maybe word for this is that Jesus is the ruler of God's creation. It's another title of Jesus' authority, but it's also a title of hope. It too comes from a place in Isaiah where God speaks of his coming redemption of the whole world. And so what we see here is that the Laodiceans need more than anything else to be entirely renewed. They need to experience God's new creation, the power of his Holy Spirit bringing life out of death. It's like they need a spiritual reboot, a fresh outpouring of 
God's spiritual riches and life because Jesus is the king of God's new creation and he alone can give it to them. And so that's why for all this wrong with this church in Laodicea, the letter is not without hope. Jesus has not given up on them yet. But the church, as Jesus describes it here, has two major problems. The first one is that it's lukewarm. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, you're not hot or cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Once again, the body of the letter starts with what Jesus knows. He says, I know your works. Here it means, I know that you might be able to pull the wool over your friend's eyes. I know that you can even fool your pastor, but you cannot fool me. Jesus says, because I know exactly what your lives really say about your souls. His verdict on this church in Laodicea is that they are just about as weak and pathetic as it's possible for any church to be. This is the only letter out of all seven that he, there's nothing positive in this whole letter about the church. Jesus says, you are so lukewarm, you are so compromised that you make me want to vomit. We've got Valentine's Day coming up in a few days. Imagine you are out with the man or the woman of your dreams at your favorite food truck. You're sitting there. They gaze at you across the funky picnic table. And they say, you know, the sight of you makes me want to barf. (laughs) That would be horrible, of course. It would be terrible to be told that by another person. But imagine being told this by your God and your Lord. Jesus does not say, when he says, I wish you were hot or cold, he's not saying, I wish you were either with me or against me. I don't think Jesus would ever tell anybody that he wants them to be spiritually cold. Instead, it's clear that being hot is a good thing and being cold is also a good thing. One way to make sense of this uh, is the water supply in Laodicea that archaeologists tell us about. Uh, They discovered that Laodicea was a really important business center. It was very wealthy, but its water supply was just gross. It was one of three towns that got its water from the same river. Uh, The town that was upstream got its water from a hot spring that was thought to be good for healing. Uh, The other one downstream got its water cold and refreshing by the time it got there. But in between is Laodicea itself. Its water is lukewarm and so just kind of useless and revolting. We don't need to know that to make sense of what Jesus is saying. Another possibility, given the way that the letter ends by talking about having a meal together, is that Jesus is talking about wine. Uh, Wine is good hot, like at Christmas time, mulled wine, or it's good nice and cool. It's disgusting when it's sitting at the temperature of your car in a Texas summer. Either way, Jesus' point is this. He says, I wish you were hot enough to bring healing to the spiritually sick or I wish you were cold enough to bring refreshment to the spiritually weary. But here's the reality. You're not one or the other. 
And so right now you're making me sick. That's why in verse 19 he tells them, be zealous and repent. He would love for them to hunger for God's word the way that a new baby hungers for his mother's milk. He would love for them to pray like they mean it, to bear witness about him boldly in a world that does not always want to hear what he has to say. But this church is a million miles away from all that. Um, I don't imagine that they ever made some conscious decision to do all this. No one stood up at the front of the church and said, let's be the kind of church that makes Jesus dry heave. Nobody ever went on their website and announced their vision as making disciples who make Jesus vomit. But this is the church that they've become. A literal translation of the end of verse 16 suggests that Jesus has had enough. You could translate it as, I'm about to spit you out. So his first judgment is that they're lukewarm, but his second judgment here is that they're deluded. Verse 17, he says, You say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So these guys, if you remember, are the opposite of what we heard about in this church in Smyrna. The church in Smyrna, back in chapter 2, were materially poor, but spiritually rich. But here, the Laodiceans are materially rich, and so they presume that they must be prospering spiritually. But just like the emperor's new clothes, the reality is that they're spiritually naked and bankrupt. But there's another level to this because the word translated as rich in verse 17 pops up all over the book of Revelation always to speak of unbelievers who are not just rich but are idolatrous, who are participating in the world's own greedy system of giving yourself over to physical things. And so it's likely that the Laodicean Christians are the same. They don't see any conflict at all between living for Christ on Sundays but living for other gods every other day of the week. They could have easily said to themselves, well, God obviously doesn't mind what we do. Why would he bless us with all these riches? And so they didn't realize and they didn't want to realize what God really thought of them. And so the five adjectives here come like bullets one after another right into their hearts. Jesus says, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Or as some people around here say, naked. It should give us pause. I mean, can you think of a greater danger for the church in America than this one? Being lukewarm amidst constant pressure to look to wealth and comfort for our peace and our security. Jesus says in the gospel accounts that it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. And he means that. There's not some goofy uh, hidden metaphor there about camels kneeling down to get through gates. That's made up. The point is that it's only by a true miracle 
that any wealthy person can get into God's kingdom at all. Now, Jesus is not saying there or here that wealth is inherently evil. The Bible is clear that wealth can be and often is God's blessing upon us. And Jesus is not saying there or here that poor people are necessarily morally superior. But Jesus is making a point evidenced almost everywhere we look here in the wealthiest country in the history of the world. That when we have wealth, we find it so easy to think that we do not really need God to take care of us. Very few of us have any idea what Jesus means when he teaches us to pray for our daily bread. Even when we don't have as much as we want, we still find it so easy to think that if and when we do get it, we will finally be able to be secure. And so like the Laodiceans, we find it so easy to live for our bank accounts, for our physical health, for our appearance and status. We so easily give lip service to God and to being generous and to caring about His work in the world. But the reality is that we find it so easy to give Him just the table scraps of our hearts and our schedules and our wallets. And so in a world like ours, it's easy to be so tepid in faith, so lukewarm in spirit. Just like Israel at so many points in her own history, we tell ourselves that we're spiritually rich when the reality is a superficial farce. One more observation before we move on to the antidote. Uh, Notice down in verse 20 where Jesus is located. You see this? Jesus says, right now, I'm standing outside of the church. He's knocking on the door, but he's outside. He's saying, let me back in. And that might be the most terrifying thing of all. He's outside, and the door is shut, and fellowship is broken, and his threat is that he may soon walk away completely. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. And so we move on from his terrifying threat of impending judgment now to this tantalizing invitation to renewed fellowship. A tantalizing invitation to renewed fellowship. He says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salves to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Verse 19 is this wonderful window into the heart of Jesus. We could maybe be forgiven for thinking that the first half of this letter is driven by frustration and anger and irritation. Because you see, so often in our culture, we set up this sharp contrast between love, love, and judgment. This sharp contrast between caring and consequences. But in reality, just like with good parents who discipline and rebuke their children precisely because they love them, here Jesus' harsh words are actually an expression of his pure love. 
He rebukes the Laodiceans, but he has not yet rejected them. He criticizes them, but he does not yet condemn them. He loves them too much to let them remain in these nauseating lives of idolatry and compromise. And so he starts by giving them some advice. Now you can see that the counsel he gives them is the perfect antidote to these self-inflicted problems. He says, you are poor. So buy from, from me some pure gold. He says, you're naked, but now I will give you clothes to hide your shame. He says, you're blind, but I can give you medicine. I can give you an ointment that will enable you to see. But what's especially noticeable is that the answer to their problems is not found out in the world, but in Christ himself. Now, Laodicea was famous for three things in the first century. It was famous for its banking system. It was famous for its textile industry. It was famous for its eye hospital. And so Jesus is being very deliberately provocative when he says to a church that's obsessed with the world that my counsel is to buy from me gold and clothes and medicine because I'm the only one who can cure your deluded hearts. So you see, Jesus is not telling them that they need some abstract spiritual cure. He's telling them that they need him personally, that he is the answer to their sin. He's saying, come to me. Let me be your cure. And so there's another significant lesson in there for us. Uh, Think of the times when we ourselves are spiritually cold, when we're trying to help those who are. You see here that our greatest need is not some spiritual program or spiritual guru. It's not even just to try harder. In those times, our greatest need is for Christ himself. He alone can give us the spiritual riches and robes of righteousness and the insight and wisdom that we need. And the great encouragement of this message is that Jesus is willing to give them, even to those who are so compromised that they make him sick. He says in verse 18 that they have to buy them, but I think it's a lot like when dad gives his kids some money to go and buy some Christmas presents for mom. Because the price has already been paid. Jesus bought all these things for us with his blood on the cross. There's probably an echo here of the words we heard earlier from Isaiah chapter 55. Where God says, come to me all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And so here Jesus commands the Laodiceans to repent. But they don't do that, and we don't do that, trusting in our own resources or in the things that the world values, but we do it trusting in Him. Because He is the Amen. He is the one in whom we can become new creations. Jesus' assessment of this church in this first half of the letter is brutal. Think how offensive you would have to be to tell someone that you want to spit them out of your mouth. 
But still, even to those who make him sick, Jesus extends this wonderful, gracious offer of himself. He offers fresh love, even to them, even to you. There's no need for terror when we come back to Jesus. When we come back to him in repentance and faith, because as the Apostle Paul tells us, it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. And so Jesus is always ready to offer us his abundant grace in the midst of our sin. But along with the advice of verse 18 comes the assurance of verse 20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant with him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The assurance has two dimensions to it. The first one is an assurance of relationship. Uh, verse 20 is the subject of a famous painting called Light of the World. Uh, Jesus is painted standing outside the door of a ramshackled old hut, holding a lantern, standing there kind of timidly, knocking a little bit politely, waiting to be let inside. Uh, most often this verse is taken as an evangelistic invitation to the whole world. The preacher says, open the door of your heart and let Jesus in. There might be some truth to that, but we've seen this morning that the original context is very different. Uh, this is not an invitation to people who are not yet Christians, but this is a summons, a demand even, to an apostate church to come back to him. Jesus is saying, you may have given up on me, but I have not given up on you, at least not yet. And so now, if only you will open the door to him, Jesus is waiting and willing to renew his relationship of love with you. Jesus says to them, heed my warning, accept my advice, listen to my voice, be zealous and repent, and I will come back in. I'll come back in to sit and to eat. It's a picture of fellowship, of acceptance. And so it's an image of renewed relationship. And so that's the striking invitation that Jesus puts before this church and now today, 2,000 years later, before us. Uh, don't you love the if anyone there in verse 20? It reminds us that nobody in this life is ever too far gone. Nobody in this life is, is ever too lost spiritually to be welcomed back by Jesus. Know also that even though this letter is addressed to an entire church, it also needs to be responded to individually. The renewal of a lukewarm church only ever can begin with the renewal of one lukewarm Christian heart. Well, it's not impossible today that somebody is feeling like they're in the same boat as the Laodiceans. You're hearing Jesus knocking today. Maybe you've heard him knock in the advice of a Christian friend. You don't want to listen to what they have to say, but you know they're right. Uh, maybe Jesus is knocking uh, through the example of a Christian parent who doesn't have to nag you because you see in the light of their life that something needs to change in my life. Uh, maybe Jesus is using some form of suffering or loss in your life right now to knock on your heart. But most of all, Jesus knocks through the words of the Bible. 
He says, if anyone hears my voice, he's knocking right now. And so the question is, are we going to open the door? If we do, Jesus promises to come in and renew his dwelling with us today in the power of his Holy Spirit with full forgiveness and a fresh start in our relationship with him without grudges, uh, without snide comments to make us feel guilty. He just welcomes us back in love, renewed relationship. Jesus also here along with this assurance about relationship gives us an assurance about rule and reign. And we've heard about this before. It's the same promise he made to the church in Thyatira. He says, I will share with you my reign over the new creation of which verse 14 told us he was the beginning and the king. Jesus' people rule with him even in this life as we suffer for him. Jesus says, if you're faithful to me, you can share my throne. That's a wonderful example of the generosity of Jesus and the grace of Jesus that he would share his throne with sinners. And so we end our journey through these letters to the seven churches as they begin our journey through the whole book of Revelation. I hope that we've felt the challenge of these letters. I certainly have. But most of all, I hope that you've felt their love. I hope you felt the love of these letters and the strength that their promises can yield. Whatever our spiritual condition, Jesus is standing at the door knocking. If anyone has ears, let them hear what Jesus is saying to the churches. Because if we conquer, we will share in his eternal rule and reign forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your kindness in speaking hard words. Words of honesty and truth. We're so talented at hiding from ourselves and hiding from other people and we think we can hide from you. But we can't. You see us in all of our hypocrisy and yet you love us and you offer us new life. Help us to always and every day return to you in the midst of our sin so that we might be renewed in the mercy and the grace of your beloved son Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.